0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton.
1: And I'm Arianna Brocious. The Inflation Reduction Act is the largest government expenditure ever on climate and green industry.
0: The law has unleashed a wave of spending for established renewable energy like solar and wind and newer technologies such as green hydrogen and sustainable aviation fuel.
1: And much of that money is flowing to states whose congressional delegations actually voted against the IRA.
0: That's right. They voted no, but are happy to take the dough. One utility, Florida Power & Light, is taking advantage of the Inflation Reduction Act solar tax credits and actually refunding $400 million in savings back to ratepayers, nearly 6 million customers. Fifteen Florida Republicans voted against that law. Other examples abound. Texas alone could see $131 billion from the law.
1: And Texas is already a leader in wind and solar. An analysis by Politico found two-thirds of green energy projects announced since passage of the IRA are going to Republican-held congressional districts.
0: Despite the investments in their districts, some Republican politicians aren't fans of the green energy companies moving into their backyards. Putting them at odds with their constituents, says energy reporter Emma Dumain.
2: The disconnect between what we talk about in Washington and what people talk about back home is very stark.
1: Some of these investments are bringing jobs and revenue back to areas abandoned by fossil fuels and its associated industries, says Terry Wycombe, mayor of Rollins, Wyoming. And many people in these communities want and need new jobs, factories, and reliable, affordable,
3: renewable energy. Quality of life begins with a paycheck. And when when you lose thousands of jobs, it makes you more open to other types of job-producing industries.
1: It's kind of similar to Obamacare. When that federal health care program was rolled out, many Republicans opposed it — for lots of reasons, but probably in part because it came from a Democratic administration. And still, many aspects of the law were and remain popular across the political spectrum.
0: And to be fair, if the energy bill had been passed by Republicans, some Democrats would probably have reacted the same way initially. We're in a period of hyper-partisanship and political tribes reflexively oppose what the other supports.
1: That's something I talk about on today's show with Heather Reams, president of Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. We talk about the importance of the messenger to help get all of us working toward the same end goal, a livable planet.
4: The alarmist tone, it just gets tuned out. So you've got to figure out how you bring the right message with the right messenger.
0: The Biden administration has embarked on a campaign across the country to let people know which party is really responsible for the growth in jobs and reshoring manufacturing. President Biden recently spoke in a Republican-held congressional district in South Carolina, promoting $60 million in investments by the solar tech firm Enphase Energy. Since I took office, we've seen over 60 domestic manufacturing announcements all across the solar supply chain. One of the biggest is in Dalton, Georgia. You may find it hard to believe, but that's Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. I'll be there for the groundbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> Emma Dumain is a reporter with e News, a leading-edge publication on energy and clean tech. She says while many of the benefits from the IRA are flowing to Republican-led states, the message coming from the White House and congressional Democrats is that the law benefits everybody.
2: It doesn't matter if you're in a red state or a blue state, um, you're going to see the benefits of this bill. That said, a lot of the geography of states that happen to be controlled right now by Republican lawmakers, those are areas that are ripe for expansions of major clean energy manufacturing facilities, the production of the parts for electric batteries, uh, for electric vehicles, for solar power, for um, chip manufacturing um, that's used in clean energy endeavors. There are in rural areas, these huge swaths of land where you can build a facility and do this type of construction and hire people from those communities to work there. Um, So my colleague Timothy Kama and I actually wanted to see where the money was going? Who was benefiting from this? Is it was it true that republican led districts were really standing to to reap these benefits? And what we found was pretty interesting. We confirmed that there were at least thirty seven congressional districts now represented by Republicans who were welcoming these expansions of these new clean energy operations fostered by these three major Biden era laws. We also found that, 21 projects in Republican-led districts were a direct result of the benefits of the IRA, and 15 were made possible by the infrastructure law. Some Republicans had multiple projects uh, in their districts due to one or both of these two laws. Um, Since that time, um, this reporting that we did was a couple of months old. The numbers are probably higher now. Every day, we're seeing different press releases, announcements, um, ribbon cuttings. and Republicans are having difficulty squaring the benefits they're seeing back home with their fierce opposition to this law, both of these laws in, in many cases.
0: So what I'm hearing is you know, dozens of projects directing you know, billions of dollars and thousands of jobs into uh, red districts. And so what are the politics of that? I mean, some people might say, well, if you're in a safe district, either like voters don't vote on these issues there are some of the, some republicans and democrats are only vulnerable from a primary threat from their f- extreme flank so i can vote against my voters cuz i'm not going to lose my job if i do it
2: it's really tough because i you know i i've covered congressional politics since 2010. And the disconnect between what we talk about in Washington and what people talk about back home is very stark. Um, I think that if you were to see a repeal of these clean energy tax incentives and these thousands of jobs and billions of dollars worth of investments evaporated in communities that were reaping these benefits, I think you would immediately see political backlash. Georgia is like a perfect example of a state that is getting enormous investments in the clean energy industry. You have press release after press release on Republican Governor Brian Kemp's website praising this company and that factory and this company and that manufacturing facility, choosing Georgia, his state to break ground and and expand flagship domestic production of an international conglomerate, et cetera, et cetera, without mentioning where the money's coming from and what made this investment possible. And you have members of Congress who are attending the ribbon cuttings and the opening ceremonies in their district saying the same thing and tweeting and and press releases of their own, not citing the Biden administration and congressional Democrats who supported and carried this law single handedly. So as long as you have that sort of echo chamber, you're not going to hear the whole story and the the dearth right now of local news reporting to provide an additional layer of accountability isn't really there either in a lot of these places.
0: Marjorie Taylor Greene's been another one who's gone to a lot of factory going into her district, cut the ribbon, and then go on Twitter or social media or TV and and bash uh, the very policy that made that possible. And, and uh, the voters either don't connect the dots or they don't. They don't care. Reminds me a little bit like Obamacare, where the, the elements of Obamacare were very popular policy across the spectrum. And there was an attack on, on Obamacare. But to your point, Obamacare never was repealed. But there were the policies of uh, keeping kids on your insurance till 26, pre-existing conditions, et cetera, were all very popular. But there was this real attack and attempt to repeal it that never happened.
2: Well, and, you know, you mentioned Marjorie Taylor Green. I had a chance to connect with her, uh, on Capitol Hill for this story. And she said explicitly, this was going to happen in my district, no matter what, this was not the result of the IRA, which isn't correct. The organization Q cells, the the company that expanded in her district has said explicitly, we are here because of the IRA. So whether she was, um, not telling the truth or didn't realize what the circumstances were you know i i don't know but you know certainly um there are not um complete narratives um there are not all of the narratives are are truthful or, or hold up in fact at the same time you have someone like mark amade a fairly middle of the road as uh, as they come these days a republican congressman from nevada who has two or three projects in his district alone as a result of uh, the bipartisan infrastructure law and the IRA, telling me in an interview that he would sacrifice those jobs to repeal the law wholesale. People hate it that much.
0: Hmm. Yeah, though, maybe he, you know, it's a little bit about people supporting a carbon tax. They do it because they know it'll never happen. He can support the repeal and knowing that it, it, might, it might never happen. So what is the Republican energy and climate agenda now?
2: The Republican energy and climate agenda now largely is bashing the Democrats' energy and climate agenda. Um, They're talking about energy and climate through the lens of energy security and national security, the need to boost domestic um, energy production to avoid reliance on foreign entities like Russia and China. That means producing more oil and gas uh, at home. Uh, To lower prices at the pump is something you hear a lot. Democrats, of course, say that, you know, energy reliance is a problem, but disrupting public lands and waters to produce oil and gas here and critical minerals for EV battery production um, isn't the right way to go where you see a lot of breakdown there. They also are talking about how the permitting process that they are supporting through a reopening of the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, uh, would also benefit Democrats. They say that Democrats want renewable energy deployment that also relies on a permitting process. They say that everybody wants this. Everybody should support permitting. That gets a little stickier. A lot of what Democrats want out of the permitting process is coming through powers by this other agency, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. It wouldn't really benefit much from the NEPA changes. But what something interesting is happening among Senate Republicans, um, many of them are rallying around this idea of putting a tariff on the carbon intensity of imported goods um, in the industrial center, like cement, aluminum, iron,
0: oil. And there's some bipartisan support there. I think that that uh, you know trade has not been part of climate policy. It seems to be coming in there now. Uh, and so, is there a convergence and some bipartisan support on taxing cement, steel, other things that have a high carbon impact?
2: Yeah. So they want to be careful not to use the word tax. <laughs>
0: uh huh. Sure, tax okay. is a scary
2: <laughs> tax is a scary word, Greg. Oh, tar- um... tar- it's a tariff. Okay, <laughs> it's tariff, a tariff is. Yeah. But the reason why there is becoming bipartisan support around this idea is Senate Republicans borrowing this rhetoric of House Republicans, which is, you know, pro-America, anti-China. You have the competitiveness against the Chinese government, accusing China of being, you know, the worst emitter in the world and not paying the price for it. What can the United States do to level the playing field with a competitor like China while getting them to lower their emissions? So you have a bill from Senator Bill Cassidy, this Republican from Louisiana that he has not introduced yet, but it's going to be called the the foreign polluter fee, you know, sort of specifically um, looking at what they can do to frame this narrative around what bad actors are doing overseas, not not at home.
0: And particularly China, there's one area that Republicans and Democrats seem to agree on in Washington these days as bashing China, at least. And I, I was all careful to say it's the communist government of China, not yes, Chinese correct. people. We've seen a lot of AAPI hate in this country, so it's not be careful. So climate progressives and China hawks are coming together with this. Let Foreign polluter fee. I like what a title. So.
2: Yeah. Well, no. And I mean, in Democrat and, and you're exactly right. And 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 fortunately, you know, we're seeing a lot of Democrats and Republicans making that very important distinction about who the U.S. should be competing against the government, not the people. Democrats are more than happy to go along with that because it serves their purpose which is climate action and not to be unfair to republicans republicans there are the republicans working in this space see it as a win-win but for their base they are more incentivized to focus on this more geopolitical lens than the climate lens but you know you said you know it's it's easy to support repealing something that you know is never going to happen There's a lot of politics happening around this idea as well. We saw last week a bill introduced. It was the first bipartisan bill to be introduced around this idea. It was called the Prove It Act. It was introduced by uh, Senator Chris Kuhn, a Democrat from Delaware, and Senator um, Kevin Kramer, a Republican from North Dakota. The bill is being touted as the first step in instituting a carbon border adjustment mechanism, uh, which is the fancy word for, you know, the framework to slap these carbon tariffs on imported goods uh, for their emissions intensity. The bill that we're talking about now would require the Treasury Department to conduct a study of the carbon intensity of certain materials and how they would differ from foreign counterparts. They say that any bill that would achieve a carbon border adjustment mechanism blueprint needs to have this information anyway. So this is kind of like a great first step. On the other hand, it's a study. And from a lot of people I've talked to, it seems like this could be like the bare minimum that members of Congress are able to do. In this kind of political environment is, is let's study the emissions intensity levels of these industrial products rather than let's move forward with a carbon tariff framework that can take the kind of climate action that we all want to see.
0: But this is a, you know, why this discussion matters, or put it in a little bit of context here, because it's, it's been the problem that if we, you know, slap uh, missions or regulations on U.S. companies, they'll just move overseas, and that there were the environmental regulations are more lax, and then those products come back to the U.S. So this is getting at that kind of international equity issue, which goes all the way back to Kyoto. It's like. Why, why, why is the U.S. burdened when China isn't? And the whole question of like leakage, you know, we're just kind of squeezing the, the, the toothpaste tube and the emissions go somewhere else. And so it sounds like a lot of the energy bills introduced in the House seems like there's no chance of getting through a Democratic Senate or being signed by a Democratic president. So what's really going on? Are they laying the foundation for a Republican president, you know, in 20 and perhaps Congress in 24
2: Yeah. So I think that everything that they want to do to speed up the permitting processes um, around um, NEPA, I think that that's real. I think that um, there is an appetite to go even further than what Republicans were able to extract from the debt ceiling agreement.
0: Um, NEPA, NEPA just being the National Environmental uh, Policy Act. Uh, that's so, right. The so, so rule about how to environmental review of projects. That's so, correct.
2: That's so, correct. So I think that that's so I think that that's sincere. I think as we talked about, actually repealing the IRA and the clean energy tax credits in the IRA would be more difficult. I think that we would see a problem there politically, the same way that we did when it came time to actually repeal the Affordable Care Act, and Americans everywhere were going to be left without health insurance the same way, you know, repealing these tax credits. You know, you're going to have people out of jobs, out of work, economies, local economies really hit hard, to say the least. A lot of this is messaging stuff. Republicans in the House just passed a bill um, in early June that would prohibit the federal government from setting new rules and regulations that would ban gas stoves this is one of these like big culture war things about you know don't take away my gas stove even though the emissions are really detrimental to the um, to the environment to the atmosphere
0: and the people breathing them inside the homes increasingly
2: yes yes that's right it's a public health issue as well as a climate issue
0: so Stoves is an interesting example of energy entering the culture wars. It, it used to be that a lot of the argument was around affordability. You know, it will hurt clean energy, cost more, will hurt, uh, hurt regular Americans, lower income Americans. So the arguments, the opposition seems to have shifted from affordability to part of the culture war. Have you observed this shift? And you know, what does that mean now that energy is part of the culture wars, where it used to be part of more in an economic frame rather than a cultural frame?
2: What we're seeing right now in is the federal government using its executive authorities to change the way we live and work to meet the moment of the climate crisis. The same way that there are Republicans saying, don't take away my gas stove. You have Republicans saying, don't tell me what car to drive. There's a lot of debate right now about the um, the proposed rulemaking that the Environmental Protection Agency is doing around um, limiting um, tailpipe emissions.
0: Let me just jump in and say that the IRA was intentionally in- constructed as carrots, and people aren't told what kind of cars to drive. They're incentivized. You get $7,500 if you buy an EV, but the tax incentives are voluntary. You get them if you do something, and you don't, if you don't, you can keep on living the way you do.
2: But when it comes to what the EPA is doing right now to limit emissions they are going to make it impossible for gas powered vehicles mm-hmm. to survive in a meaningful way if this rule is finalized and a republican administration doesn't come in in 2025 to 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 roll it back you could also argue that some of the tax incentives as you say not mandates in the IRA are also designed to have um, a chilling effect on traditional oil and gas.
0: And then Domain's a reporter with E&E News. Thanks for sharing your insights on the politics of green energy in red places in America.
2: Thanks for letting me on to talk about it.
1: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about green power in red states. Please help us get more people talking about climate. You can do this a bunch of different ways. You can give us a rating or a review or you can share this episode or another with a friend. On our new website, you can create and share playlists focused on specific topics, like food, energy, activism, and more. Coming up, will the economic benefits of green energy projects being built in conservative areas change the calculus for politicians?
4: We have this interesting dichotomy of Republicans not necessarily being in favor of these tax credits through the IRA, but that red states have so much to gain from the investment that's there.
1: That's up next. Hi, Climate One listeners. We're working on an upcoming show about climate migration and want to know if you've moved within the U.S. for climate reasons, maybe to a new place with a better climate outlook. Or maybe you're concerned about a move you made for other reasons, like family or a new job, that took you to a place with more climate risk. Call our listener voicemail line to leave us a message with your story, and we may use it in an upcoming episode. The phone number can be found on our website, climateone.org, on the Contact Us page. Thanks! We know we have to make major changes to most of our systems very quickly to avert the worst impacts of a disrupted climate. But we're still not all working together on this.
0: Democrats often fault Republicans for slowing down the decarbonization of the U.S. economy. That is largely but not always true. Even when Democrats have had the upper hand in Washington, D.C., two U.S. senators from West Virginia, first Robert Byrd and recently Joe Manchin, have obstructed their party's own clean energy pushes for three decades. But it is the case that more Republicans resist efforts to act on climate through regulations or restricting fossil fuel supplies, especially when those policies come from across the aisle.
1: Heather Reams is one of the Republicans working to narrow that divide. She's president of Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions, a nonprofit that works to engage Republican policymakers about how to increase the nation's economic, energy, and environmental security.
4: As a parent, I decided that I wanted to do something about the environment and how I was raising my kids. It was just one of these things where you're like, wow, everything we're doing today affects tomorrow, affects the next generations. And as a Republican, I saw that Republicans weren't really engaging on climate change or thinking about the outcomes of kids and dealing with a changing climate, the health concerns, and I felt like we should be engaged, more engaged on this issue. So uh, when I, this opportunity came before me, I'm like, you know what, I'm just a mom who's been working in Washington, D.C., who understands this is a, a value, and I want to change the hearts and minds of Republicans, so I'm in.
1: Well, I want to say that just a mom is an understatement for any mom because <laughs> for it's sure. a big job, as I can attest. But um, what was it that made you think that this was the place to put your effort?
4: Well, I thought there was an area that there was just I think the problem with being the message and the messenger, like we can have all the great messages we want about why the climate is changing and why we should change it, but the messengers were always off. They were not trusted messengers going to Capitol Hill, talking to Republican legislators. And there was always an assumption that someone who's from a different side of the aisle or someone that you don't ideologically agree with, that there's something nefarious going on. So we really had to line up, you know, the politics and the policies and the messenger, and that wasn't happening. My background has been in Washington, D.C. for the last 25 plus years is communications. So I recognize that there was a gap there. But, you know, I, I can actually fill this gap. I don't have to be the communications professional kind of in the background. I can be actually the lead communications person on it. And as a result, over seven years, man, have I learned a lot. Um, I certainly know more about energy than I ever have, certainly more than turning on the light switch is where I started. And then really understanding the nuances of what's going on with climate, that it's it's not, you know, I'm not a scientist and thinking about that and a lot of other places where Republicans get uncomfortable, but telling Republicans, like I started where you are. I wasn't really sure why I cared, but I knew I had to care. Let me help you walk through some of the science, some of the facts and some of the benefits of addressing climate change that... All boats can rise if we um, think about deploying clean energy all around the country.
1: A study by researchers at the Brookings Institution Metropolitan Policy Program showed red states will be most exposed to economic and environmental risks from a changing climate, yet many of these areas also have the greatest potential for clean energy production. In spite of that, climate does not seem to be a serious consideration in many red states. Why do you think climate messaging has failed in these areas?
4: Well, I'll go back to message and messenger and some of that too. We really don't have the right messengers bringing bringing forward like this is the why. There's also a lot of, if you're thinking about left of center, if you're Republican and there's a lot of Republicans in these red states, that's why they're called red states, um, and thinking about who's talking to them and if you're hearing from a further left of center organization And the alarmist um, tone that comes, it just gets tuned out. So you've got to figure out how you bring the right message with the right messenger. And that was one of the reasons why uh, Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions is so valuable, because we're all Republicans who believe that the climate is changing and want to help bridge that gap that information gap and really the authentic messengers. Um, and it's like, we're Republicans. We're with you. We understand that you may not think this is the threat that it is, but let's talk about what's really going on and having those conversations a lot of times behind closed doors. And over time, we've seen Republicans go, I, no one's ever talked to me this way about it. No one's ever said this to me before. We're seeing a shift in that now. You know, if you don't address it, don't talk about it. It probably can't get fixed. So it's been a combination of things that have happened. But to your point, the red states are at, at tremendous risk particularly in coastal areas, and that's where we see the most traction and the the quickest traction with Republicans was in those areas like lower coastal areas, Florida, South Carolina, um, hurricane-prone areas as well. We're seeing hurricanes that may cross as a one or two category are now crossing always as fours and fives and, and creating catastrophic damage in areas. So I think there's something like, wait a minute, something's different who can I trust to talk to to tell me what's going on? Hopefully, and oftentimes, the first call is to us.
1: You're underscoring things we've heard from past guests. I mean, Catherine Hayhoe speaks a lot about the importance of messengers and climate communication. And we had Representative John Curtis on recently, and he was saying a similar thing about the alarmism that can be really off-putting when it comes from from you know the other side of the aisle. The Inflation Reduction Act has the potential to send more money and jobs, actually, to some Republican districts, despite being a law passed by Democrats. How will that affect the implementation of renewable energy projects in some of these states?
4: Well, the IRA is um, going to continually be under threat. There's tax credits that are so valuable for the expansion of clean energy. They've created an incentive and a lot of certainty at first uh, for industry to think about investing where it maybe wasn't as profitable to invest before. So they're incredibly important tax credits despite the fact that they were passed in a partisan manner uh, through IRA and signed um, into into law by President Biden with only Democrats voting for it. So um, as as an advocate, for clean energy, we saw that this could be a real challenge. Moving forward, these tax credits could be at risk. And here we are, certainly they are at risk. But it is interesting to see a lot of the investment are going into red states. So we have this interesting dichotomy of Republicans not necessarily being in favor of these tax credits through the IRA, but that red states have so much to gain from the investment that's there. So there needs to be a lot of education happening and trying to get the politics out of the way so good policy can take root. For example, A lot of the tax credits, let's take the uh, tax credit for energy storage, for instance, um, had enjoyed bipartisan support. Both House and Senate Republicans supported this bill, um, and it had a good chance of passing on its own. We've been working on that bill for a while. Well, now it's passed through IRA. So we need to talk to Republicans and remind them that this was actually a bipartisan bill, but the process in which it was passed ultimately was partisan and also talk about the value and the investments that are going to go into their districts. Now this is called retail politics by the way. Now we have to talk to a lot of republicans individually about the investments that are going into their states because of a process.
1: And so you're mentioning the opposition that we're seeing at the congressional level at you know national level which is is very true. What are you hearing from elected officials at the state and local level about the money coming from the IRA into their states and districts?
4: No, very different, actually. At the state level, we have governors who are the CEO of their states. Governors talk about this all the time. And this means more economic opportunity, workforce development, um, and a strong tax base. So usually, re- these governors are all in for it. Um, and they're the, quick to point out that these, a lot of these tax credits were bipartisan before they got wrapped into a partisan process and a partisan bill and also at the at the local level as well. Um, at the local level, we seem to have more challenges with like siting issues that are very much more of the NIMBYism and others. But at the state level, we see a lot of support. So really we need to marry, and this is one of the strategies that we're looking at, is marrying what's going on at the state level and making sure that they're communicating with their federal delegation and talking about the benefits. And I, I think time is our friend here. The more time that these projects take root into these districts, and to the red districts, if you will. Um, they're going to create a tax base. They're going to create jobs. They're going to create economic opportunity. They're going to likely start um, producing lower energy costs if you're producing wind or solar. You know, It's going to lower costs to produce goods and services. And you know, of course, the tax base, schools, healthcare, community services, this all starts to come into play. And man, do you know that governors and state legislators and mayors and city councils love that stuff. They need it and they're banking on it, particularly in rural areas where we're seeing a lot of investment. So there, it, it, time is also our friend, but there's a lot of education that needs to be done to create the certainty and make sure these tax credits take take hold.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the, the jobs and the economies, because I think this is really important. Um, the Department of Energy just released a report showing clean energy job growth. And while that was occurring in all 50 states and D.C., two of the top three states were West Virginia and Texas, um, which both saw pretty big gains. And Texas is already a big leader in renewable energy, as well as oil and gas. So what does that say to you about what we're seeing happen, even in the in the short term, you know, the last several months?
4: Well, we've had a number of bills that have been passed that are investing into energy development. We earlier had the Clean Energy Act of 2020 that passed that had some development for for clean energy. We also had the IIJA, which is also known as the Infrastructure Act, also contributing to a lot of uh, the infrastructure and pieces for energy. So I think that's what we're seeing primarily right now is the benefits of those laws passed, particularly IIJA but we're already seeing benefit after 2 years. So imagine with IRA going in and these tax credits and the investments that are starting to happen, wow, we could really see a lot you know growing exponentially year over year over year. What's holding back a lot of projects, though, and it's something we need to be, as a country, concerned about is permitting. Permitting is not just holding up fossil fuels. Permitting is delaying renewable projects all across the country. So we need to get real serious about what permitting is is helping to do and hurting to do. And deploying clean energy is really a problem right now with permitting.
1: And this is a really powerful and contentious Point of discussion right now because both sides of the aisle want permitting reform. We've been hearing a lot about it, um, especially in some of the talks around the debt ceiling. But yes, there's sort of really different approaches to what should be happening and which kinds of projects should get streamlined. So give us your perspective on where this divide stands and what do you think we can make headway on with Republicans you talk to in getting not just additional reforms for um, traditional industries, gas and oil, but renewables as well?
4: Well, the good news is that both Republicans and Democrats recognize that permitting is an issue. So no, neither side needs to be convinced that there needs to be some changes going on. That is a huge step in Washington to to get to to legislating in some way. But, you know, the devil is going to be in the details here. And there's going to need to be some kind of I get this, you get that and trading in some way. And what we see a lot of times is uh, you see traditionally Republicans leaning in more on fossil fuels and Democrats leaning in more on renewable energy. Um, Although those lines are starting to blur, I think you're going to see it kind of loud and clear. There's traditional lines when it comes to permitting. So So there's going to be some give and take there. Transmission is something that means a lot to Democrats right now and it means a lot to renewable energy. So I I see there would be a lot of give to be able to get the transmission. Republicans want more than anything right now um, some kind of legal reform, ability to sue and the time frames where judicial changes could be made. And there are lobbies that want to keep that in place as well, that are loyal typically to Democrats. So these are tough politics. And the fact that we didn't see them in the debt ceiling negotiations, while it's not unusual because it's such a complicated issue, it just goes to show when both sides of the aisle want something, that even in serious negotiations day after day after day, they still couldn't get it done. And I've heard from those who have been in the room or close to the room with the president and the top negotiators for Republicans saying that we're not far apart. But getting there is a long slog. So I'm I'm not saying this is not gonna happen. I'm not saying it's not gonna happen this year, but there's gonna have to be some give and take of what one side wants and what's the other side. And if both sides actually walk away unhappy, it's probably a good deal. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see though.
1: <laughs> That's always the case, right? Yeah. Both unhappy. I do want to drill in for one second here because I know one thing that that has been brought up in permitting reform is this comparison or analogy that Natural gas pipelines have essentially this kind of one-stop shop when they go to get permitted. And the same is not true for renewable energy projects. Um, do you see like that specific issue having any chance of movement on both sides of getting to a a, a place of unity?
4: I absolutely do. One thing that I think that Republicans pride themselves on is, is fostering more government efficiency and lowering costs and lowering costs for industry generally um, to get things built. So I think that's that's probably one of the easiest lifts that we can see in a permitting discussion. But to give that, they're gonna want something in return. So it's not just one issue by one issue. We have to look at all of this in a large, like what's on the table here and then what will come off the table and then we can get to some agreements.
1: There's a group called Citizens for Responsible Solar, which has a name similar to your organization but is not in any way affiliated, that has been spreading misinformation about solar energy in rural areas to get residents there to oppose new solar projects. What do you think of that effort and what has your experience been with those types of misinformation challenging the transition to renewable energy?
4: Well, it's really unfortunate. I mean, first of all, the name is too darn close, but there's nothing I can do about it because I've checked. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate to spread you know, false information about the solar industry and what it can bring. You know, interestingly, if you have all of these jobs in your districts or you're producing solar or wind or nuclear plant, whatever it is, there's always sometimes a nimbyism when it's being built. But once it's there, do people appreciate the tax base it brings, the jobs? Um, and, you know, I you know, whatever other benefits that those would, would think about. And our polling we did in, in uh, earlier this year, I think in March, showed that 82% of Republicans and 90% of independents have a favorable view of solar power. So this is just Republicans' independence. When you start to talk about those who live near a facility for solar those numbers increase. 88% of Republicans support it and 93% of independents support solar because they live near a facility. So that's the opposite of NIMBYism. That's YIMBYism. Yes, yes, or yes, right? So I, I think that um, the misinformation is probably getting to a, a, a few individuals and they are starting to be very noisy. But when you really deal with rank and file Republicans and independents, for instance, they have no problem with this. But citing is a, is a, is a powerful issue. You're building in our backyards, you're changing our, our, the way we live, and um, there's a lot of fear that can be um, uh, built on by a few. And this organization is certainly doing a very good job of, uh, in some areas, of trying to scare off local residents about the benefits. So it's fight fire with fire. And that's exactly what we see with a lot of uh, -of right-of-center organizations like the Land and Liberty Coalition that are on the ground talking about encountering that narrative. These are Republicans also talking about the values of solar as well. So we talked about the message and the messenger. Here's a perfect example where the messenger matters as well. We have Republicans um, you know, potentially on both sides for and against solar. Let's let the citizens make the best decision and not use fear mongering, but facts, facts and figures about really what happens. And I think ultimately um, the renewable energy, and particularly solar in this case, will win.
1: You know, and interestingly, solar can be very small and locally owned and operated, which can really dovetail with a lot of values of people who live in rural areas, who want to be self-sufficient, who don't want to have to depend on you know, transmission towers, who don't want their view shed in that sense maybe disrupted. And We spoke with a woman named Michelle Moore, who's CEO of a group named Groundswell, who's working to do some of this in rural areas, trying to actually get churches and small organizations to own their own panels and become self-sufficient. So it's interesting to me that there's a divide there when it would seem to be in alignment with some of these other values, right?
4: For sure. And another area... um, there's an independence piece for sure that that is attractive to a lot of Republicans. It's also um, a, a lot of folks who are getting tired of the power going off you know during storms because our storms are getting more more violent. I know in Puerto Rico, everyone wants solar right now because of what they've gone through over the last several years and they want the reliability of electricity. Who can blame them? Um, especially when you've always had it. But solar is also being you know, considered almost like a crop and you're having land that's no longer being used for farming or it's a family farm that's just not able, the family doesn't want to farm anymore, but they don't want to let go of the land. They want a rural lifestyle and they can lease out their land and still have the lifestyle that they want. We saw this earlier with cell phone towers and leasing your land to have cell phone towers there. It's not that different uh, than doing that. So it, it, I think it gives people choices about how they want to use their land and how they want to generate their electricity. And I think that's for Republicans, I know a huge issue when it comes to economic choice um, and energy choice. And they're like, yeah, if I can can have more options, bring them to me. And I'm going to pick the best one for my family and maybe for my budget.
1: Heather Reims is president of Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. Heather, thank you so much for joining us on Climate One.
4: Thank you.
0: Coming up, The view from Wyoming, a major coal, oil and gas state that will soon be home to the largest wind farm in the country.
3: This thing is a history maker. It's almost surreal, you know, you sit there and you think, man, 14 years ago, we dreamed of this happening and today it's happening. That's up next.
1: Hey, Climate One fans, we have some exciting news. We are now on Patreon. That means that you, as a subscriber, can get access to Climate One episodes free of ads interrupting your listening experience. For just $5 a month, your Patreon membership also gets you access to our Climate One Discord channel, where you can discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash one. In spite of how easy it is to brand climate or green energy as a strictly partisan issue, people from all parties care about our current environment and future climate. And as we've been talking about today, in many communities, local economic realities may override national politics. That
0: seems to be true for Terry Wycombe, mayor of Rollins, Wyoming, where the largest wind farm in the country is currently being built, the Chokecherry and Sierra Madre Wind Energy Project. He lives in Carbon County, an apt name in a state that has long derived much of its revenue from exporting fossil fuels. But that's changing. And Terry says at first,
3: the wind industry was intimidating. You know, there were some wind towers standing before I was a commissioner, and I marveled at them. Actually, one of the largest wind towers in the Northern Hemisphere was stood up over by Medicine Bow. It was kind of an experiment. And I don't know as much about that as I should know, but it was very intriguing. And then all of a sudden, Wind energy starts uh, coming, and we had some put up at Foot Ridge, which is by Arlington on Interstate eighty. They were just mesmerizing to watch and and to see, and just kind of an amazing uh, feat of engineering. And then all of a sudden, there's fifty two wind farms being scoped out in Carbon County, which is very intimidating when you think about what what would be left of our of our wide open spaces with 52 wind farms so they kind of scared the heck out of us it was a new industry to us but it wasn't new to the world and so it just took a tremendous amount of effort on our part to research and and to decide what you know what is good about them what isn't good about them where should they be where should they not be you know, minimum regulations as far as spacing from houses and subdivisions and such like that. It was an open book. None of us knew anything about it. So it it was quite a learning process. It was very intimidating.
0: So I can see how that's intimidating. New industry coming in, wind farms potentially all over the beautiful landscapes of
3: Wyoming. What did the ranchers
0: and hunters think and how have their attitudes changed over time?
3: Well, as far as the ranchers, it kind of depended upon whether they were uh, in the process of leasing their land to wind farms. (laughs) If they were in that category, they were very quietly all for them. And then if they were ranchers that didn't have that possibility of wind energy coming to their ranch, they weren't quite as positive.
0: If I have a ranch next to yours, Terry, I don't want to look at (laughs) <laughs> the wind turbines that are making you money and not me money—is that one way to look at it?
3: Yeah, that kind of describes every industry, really. But it, where the wind towers are so tall and visible for you know distances, they, uh, they, there were people were pretty passionate one way or the other about them.
0: Well, just last week, something quite remarkable happened near your town where. President Biden's Energy Secretary Jennifer Graham Holm and Wyoming's Republican Governor Mark Gordon officially broke ground on a transmission line that will carry electricity from the country's largest wind farm, near your Town, the Chokecherry and Sierra Madre wind farms, backed by the billionaire oil man out of Colorado, Philip Anschutz. What did you think at that moment where there was one of President Biden's cabinet secretaries, your Republican governor, getting there to celebrate a big wind transmission and generation facility there in Wyoming.
3: Oh, it was incredibly exciting. 14, 15 years ago is when they started this project or it became visible to us in our county. And so the pers- amazing perseverance and, and just tenacity in getting this wind farm built where it's you know it's it is one of the larger ones in the united states or the largest one i believe in the united states but you have to understand in wyoming some big projects are commonplace this thing is a history maker i mean it was so exciting we made history that day uh, the ribbon cutting for that gateway west power line because until the power lines there the the wind towers won't go up um, because they have to hook to the grid within a certain amount of time or lose their federal tax credits. So it's almost surreal. You know, you sit there and you think, man, 14 years ago we dreamed of this happening. And and then I thought to myself, and today it's happening. Coal jobs and
0: production in Wyoming are declining. Coal companies have declared bankruptcy. Is this a turning point for Wyoming from coal to wind? Well.
3: There's a huge difference between coal production and wind, and wind energy production. One is, in the way of coal production, it, it makes a lot more jobs. The coal industry has you know hundreds of people per shift or thousands per shift and such like that. And the wind energy is, is different. It takes quite a few people to build these wind farms, but not very many people to run them when it's over. So as far as filling one void with this... It does different things, but it's not an exact match.
0: What I hear you saying there is that one generates revenue, the other generates jobs, and those are not the same things for the same
3: people. Well, they both generate revenue, but with the wind farms, what they do is create a lot of taxes, and then those taxes do also create other jobs to help support the infrastructure, the people coming and going, the impacts of the construction workers and whatnot. And so it do, it ends up being a very positive thing also, but in a different way.
0: And do, Wyoming has a wind production tax. It's one or one of the very few that, that does that. Uh, that's often seen to be as hostile to industry. Can you say a little more about that?
3: When I was appointed to the County Commissioners Association Wind Task Force Committee, they were paying a... Uh, Property tax. And that was the only tax they were paying. They were sales tax exempt. So they didn't pay any sales tax and and there was no production fee. All they paid was uh, property tax fees. The problem with that is they're a piece of an equipment and they depreciate. So as an example, there were 192 of them on this one wind farm up there by Arlington. And the last year I was a county commissioner, the total amount of taxes the county received was $30,000, which would pay for about 30 feet of road. Therefore, if they're not paying their fair share of taxes, grandma at the end of the block on a fixed income gets to help pay for some of those things. That just was not fair. So we looked at how best to tax them, and it seemed like um, the best way was to reinstate the sales tax uh, fee because they were exempted, and then to add on a dollar a megawatt hour of production fee to help the ongoing uh, expenses of supporting these industries. A lot of people poked fun of us at charging for the wind and whatnot there's several ways to charge for that but that was the most fair and equitable way i don't know if you all studied uh, oil but in the day when oil first came along they had the same struggles you know where do they where do they charge for the oil is it when it comes out of the ground when it goes into the pipe out of the pipe in the truck out of the truck where do they and how do they account for all that this is almost a carbon copy of what happened in that industry.
0: I will admit I was one of the people who, when I read the stories about Wyoming taxing the wind, that I sort of uh, you know, laughed or snickered at Wyoming tax the wind. But if you view wind as a resource, like minerals in the ground or fossil fuels in the ground that are extracted and sent somewhere else, it makes sense that the local economy ought to have a piece of that action. And how do local Republicans and Democrats view wind energy in Wyoming?
3: Well, there's probably six Democrats here. No, not really. There's more than that, but they're by far the minority. And in Wyoming, the difference between a, a Republican and Democrat is you almost can't distinguish between the two of them. I mean, let's just face it, quality of life begins with a paycheck. And when, when you lose thousands of jobs, it makes you more open to other types of job-producing industries.
0: Is this transition to wind something to
3: accelerate and embrace? Well, change doesn't come easily to really anybody. And and when this wind energy stuff started, we didn't know anything about it. Nobody knew anything about it. And so, you know, the worst fear in the world is is the fear of the unknown. You know, I, we didn't know anything about it. How long do they last? How dangerous are they? What do they do? You know, we heard all kinds of stories, but... You know, when people talk about this energy transition, it's like one day we're going to uh, just not have fossil fuels. And if that's the case, I don't know what we'd be talking on because this headset I got on and this computer I'm looking at, it's all plastic. So guess what? That was made out of uh, fossil fuels. And, uh, and if, if everybody today went out and bought an electric car, uh, 99.9% of the people in Wyoming would be walking because there isn't enough places to charge them.
0: Ford and General Motors are both selling electric trucks. There was a big wait list for the F-150 Lightning when it was announced. Uh, would you buy an electric truck? Do you think your neighbors would?
3: Not living here because you'd have to buy a wreck or two. You know, our town is 100 miles from any other town.
0: One of our producers, Austin, actually charged an EV at a Tesla supercharger in Rollins as part of a cross-country trip. Both Ford and GM have a new deal with Tesla to use the Tesla supercharging network, which is pretty uh, strong around the country. I'm currently driving from Idaho through Nevada uh, using that charging network. Maybe that day is closer than you might think.
3: How many, when you pull up and you're filling up with, uh electricity how many people are there charging their car when you're there uh
0: depends but on the application i can always know in advance how many are going to be there and i never pull up and it's full because i know before i go there um and if if, if one is full most i've ever had to wait is a five minutes and there's usually another one down i'm driving across i-80 right now on a road trip and uh, that hasn't been a problem. Availability. So, how many
3: electric cars did you see out there, percentage-wise?
0: Yeah, small, totally small S- in, in Idaho and in Nevada. Very small number. So, percentage. if you go from
3: the one percent of electric cars, and you go up to say seventy-five percent electric cars,
0: that's a growth—a growth to manage that could cause some difficulty, which is why we need. A lot of that wind you're going to generate there in Rollins.
3: <laughs> all I'm trying to tell you is that if we all tomorrow in Wyoming switch to electric cars, there would be a line from here to California waiting to charge your car. This electric energy is its great. It's fun. I've played with wind chargers since I was a little kid. But That transition is not a five-year transition. It's going to take a long time to get the infrastructure right. I believe the transition may take place in my lifetime, but I don't think so. So to
0: sum up, Terry, it sounds like you think wind is a good thing. In certain places, it should be. In other places, not. Uh, And that this transition is happening. The direction, there seems to be a lot of agreement toward Uh, wind, solar, etc. There's differences about the pace of that transition and how fast it'll happen. Is that a fair summary of your view?
3: Yeah, and I think some of the the discrepancy and how long it's going to take and this and that is, maybe I have a different view because I'm not running for election. I'm not trying to sell anybody anything. It's just not going to happen that fast. It took 14 years to get to the point where they now have the permit to start building a power line from here to California or Nevada, and that will allow them to put up these wind towers. Now, that, all, that took 14 years, maybe 15. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. <laughs> how long is it going to take before we do enough of those to be able to drive around with a bunch of electric cars?
0: Yeah, well, I think there's agreement that things take too long to build in this country, and environmentalists need to start saying yes. And instead of saying no all the time,
3: we can be too careful. You know, I just dealt with this at City Hall a few minutes ago. Everybody's like, well, we got to be careful. We got to be careful. Well, if we want to be as careful as we can possibly be, we all need to go in and get a cement box, bury it, and get in it. And then then probably lightning won't strike you or any of that sort of stuff.
0: Terry, thank you so much for sharing your insights from Rawlins, Wyoming with us here on Climate One.
3: Well, thank you for having me. On this
0: Climate One, we've been talking about green power in red states. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be difficult, exciting, and awkward, many things, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do that many ways. Right now on your device, you can send a link to this episode or others to a friend. On our new website, you can create and share playlists focused on topics including food, energy, power, and more. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Ariana Brocious is co-host, editor, and producer. Austin Cologne is producer and editor. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Wincy Shade is our development manager. Ben Testani is our communications manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.